0: Well, here we are again back in the book of Matthew. Uh, We finished just before Easter in chapter 11. We left off as Karen uh, finished the the chapter with, Take my yoke upon you, learn of me, bind yourself to me. And we're continuing on in that. Um, We're going to see how Matthew uh, shows us what Jesus taught and, and what he wanted us to learn as we learn of him. And so turn to chapter 12, and we're going to read verses 1 to 8. I'm not going to read the whole thing through. We'll do sections. I think it's, it stays fresh in our mind then as we take each, each section. So chapter twelve, one to 8, follow along with me. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, "'Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath.' He said to them, "'Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, "'and those who were with him, "'how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, "'which it was not lawful for him to eat, "'nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? "'Or have you not read in the law "'how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath "'and are guiltless?' I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. It's interesting to see how Matthew records the events and the conversations that he felt were necessary to show how Jesus dealt with opposition. He taught the people in chapter 5 to 7, In the Sermon on the Mount, he was correcting and enlarging on some of the things they had heard from their rabbis. And he said, you have heard, but I say unto you. You have heard, but I say unto you. But now look at the difference as he addresses the Pharisees, the religious know-it-alls. He says, have you not read? Of course they had, and they knew what the law originally was intended to do. There was never any rule against doing good on the Sabbath. Jesus is going to explain to these religious leaders what they should have known. What the disciples had done was not illegal. In fact, God had given the very rule that when harvest time came, they were not to glean right to the corner of the field, but to leave food for the poor or travelers. Remember the story of Ruth and Boaz? In their culture, picking heads of grain at the edge of a field was not considered stealing. Stealing was not the issue here. The focus was that they did it on the Sabbath. In fact, the Sabbath law was aimed against doing regular work. And Jesus is using this incident not to question the Pharisees' view of the Sabbath, but really their approach to the law itself. So what would these Pharisees think? Was what he said logical? Let's see how he deals with them. He asked the Pharisees, Have you not read? Let's look at what the scripture says. David went into the tabernacle on the Sabbath and asked for food. The high priest Ahimelech said he couldn't help him. The only food in the house was the bread of the presence, the twelve consecrated loaves that were placed in the tabernacle and were to only be eaten by the priests. David begged for this bread, and Ahimelech saw the need and gave David and his men the bread so jesus poses the question what does scripture say about this action shame shame no there's no condemnation recorded there's silence about it so jesus says if david committed a far greater breach of the sabbath law and he was not blamed then the disciples are not to be blamed for acting in this manner in which they did but wait verses In in these following verses, Jesus states the conclusion conclusion to this question. Jesus is comparing himself to David? Is that what he's doing? The Pharisees probably thought, who does he think he is? And then in verse 5, Jesus uses another portion of the scripture, Numbers 28, 9 to 10. When the priests went into the temple every Sabbath, that was their busiest working day because their worship of God required them to do some work, changing the consecrated bread, offering the double-burnt offering, and they were guiltless. The law that established the Sabbath also established the right of the priest to perform their duties. In other words, to break that law. They were declared innocent. So here is the argument. If the Sabbath restriction was overthrown or replaced by the priest's action because of the responsibility in the temple, then the temple was greater than the Sabbath. Ah, but then Jesus makes a statement and he says something greater than the temple is here. And that too takes precedence over the temple. Well, what or who is that something? Is it the kingdom or is it Jesus himself? To quote D.A. Carson, If the kingdom, then it is the kingdom Jesus is inaugurating. If it is Jesus, it's not only Jesus as a man, but as Messiah, son of David, son of man, the one who ushers in the messianic age." End of quote. Jesus is claiming that he is God incarnate, far superior to the building God had merely visited. In fact, listen as I read John 2, 18 to 21. Now, Jesus had just driven out the money changers, and the Jews said to him, "'What sign do you show us as your authority "'for doing these things?' "'And Jesus answered them, "'Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up.'" He was, of course, speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. So in this portion of scripture, Jesus was referring to himself. He is greater than the man-made temple in the law. Then he quotes for the second time, Hosea 6 and 6, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice. In other words, they had kept the shell of the law, the ceremonial requirements, but had forgotten the heart of the matter, mercy and compassion. And again, to quote Douglas O'Donnell, In other words, love for people, no matter what day it is, is love for God. Even if you bring 10,000 firstborn bulls to the temple to be sacrificed, If you walk over the poor beggar on your way in, don't think God is pleased with your abundant devotion. Divine devotion without human sympathy is irreligious. I'm going to say that again. I thought his quote was so good. Divine devotion without human sympathy is irreligious. It's ungodly. It's unbiblical. Above all, God desires mercy. The Sabbath is made for man. The Sabbath is made for man to show mercy to men. End of quote. Now remember in chapter 9, when they accused him of eating with sinners, he rebuked them and told them to go learn, quoted the same verse, Hosea 6 and 6 to them. Now he quotes the verse again, and then he makes the statement, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. This term, Son of Man, does not mean Jesus is human, just a man. It's referring to a vision Daniel saw, one like a son of man. In chapter 7 of Daniel, it says that the Son of Man represented before God, sorry, presented before God. And in Daniel, it reads, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is a everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Having been given all authority over everything, as we read in chapter 11, verse 27, being Lord of heaven and earth, Jesus, as the Son of Man, has lordship even over the Sabbath. The law was pointing to him. It finds its fulfillment in him, and he is in a position to handle the Sabbath law any way he wills and to supersede it in the same way that the temple requirements superseded the normal Sabbath restrictions. Well, let's go on and read verses 9 to 14. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, Which of you has a sheep if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? of how much more value is a man than a sheep. So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. So when you read this account in Luke 6, 6 to 11, It says that this event took place on another Sabbath. But this time, it's Jesus' actions that are questioned, not that of his disciples. The Pharisees spot the man with the withered hand, and they knew what they were doing. They were setting Jesus up, and they said, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Knowing full well the answer that according to their law, it was unlawful to set a broken limb or straighten a deformed body on the Sabbath, Now, one could aid in healing on the Sabbath when life was in danger in the form of medical help, but this is not the case. In verse 10, the reason for their question, if you look at verse 10, it says, So that they might accuse him. Matthew in this chapter makes it quite clear what they were planning. But Jesus replies by approaching the subject with care and compassion. He says, If you had a sheep and it fell into a pit on the Sabbath, wouldn't you lift it out? Of course the answer is yes. In fact, according to one of their laws, it was permissible to rescue an animal on the Sabbath. Well then, of how much more value is a man than a sheep? We know he already referred to the value of us a few chapters back uh, were more valuable than the birds of the air. So if a human being is more valuable than a sheep, and if any normal human would save a sheep that has fallen into a pit, then it is lawful to do good to people on the Sabbath. I can almost see him turning to the man and saying, stretch out your hand, almost in a defiant way. Stretch out your hand. And Luke 6 tells it was his right hand. Now, no offense to any lefties, but it's hard to make a living with a bad right hand. Notice that Jesus didn't touch the man, just told him to hold it out, and it was restored with four words, stretch out your hand. Healing. Hmm. The man didn't ask for healing, and it makes us remember, as we looked in chapter 9, the various ways Jesus healed. Some asked for healing. Others didn't, but he healed them. Jesus took the initiative. He'd been given the power and authority over all things. It's all these religious leaders should have rejoiced in what they had seen. Aren't, aren't we rejoicing when somebody's well or we get a good medical report? We're, we're just rejoicing, but not these Pharisees. They've got it all wrong, and they don't see him as the merciful king. He is Lord of the Sabbath, and he uses that lordship to do good, to show God's mercy, and he'll take the sins of the world to the cross, and Isaiah 53 and 5 says, with his wounds we are healed. But read the last part of the verse. They conspired as to how they might destroy him. IT'S INTERESTING TO SEE WHAT MATTHEW INCLUDES IN HIS GOSPEL. RIGHT AFTER HE WRITES ABOUT THE PHARISEES' RESPONSE TO THIS MIRACLE, HE NOW INCLUDES ISAIAH'S PROPHECY AND HOW IT FITS. ALTHOUGH JESUS IS THIS POWERFUL KING WHO has SUCH AUTHORITY OVER ALL, HERE MATTHEW RECORDS ISAIAH'S DESCRIPTION OF THE SERVANT WHOM GOD HAD SENT. LET'S READ ABOUT THE SERVANT IN VERSES 15-21. to JESUS, AWARE OF THIS, WITHDREW FROM THERE. And many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his names, the Gentile, in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Jesus withdrew from there. When opposition became intense, he withdrew. It's not the right time for him to be captured and killed. He had said in John chapter seven, "My time has not yet come." Many followed him and he healed them all, and that's why he commands those who is healed not to make him known. D.A. Carson gives a good insight into this. He says, and I quote, Jesus is not presenting himself as a mere wonder worker who can be pressured into messiahship by crowds whose messianic views are materialistic and political. Jesus' authority derives from God alone, not the acclaim of men. He came to die, not to trounce the Romans. I like that, not to trounce the Romans. I can almost hear. Don Carson saying it. Physical healings are rare in the Old Testament. Jesus used the healings to show his deity. He was laying the foundation of his kingdom. In Matthew 7, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. He is that rock. And in 1 Corinthians 3 and 11, Paul writes, no one can lay a foundation other than the one already laid, which is Christ Jesus. That's 1 Corinthians 3. In 11 to 15, it continues on. For other foundation, and this is from the King James, for other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He chose to display his deity and his authority in healing, raising the dead and freeing people with demons. He showed not only power over the physical and spiritual realms, but he also showed the compassion of God toward those affected by sin. Now, in verse 16 of what we just read, he ordered them not to make him known, not to tell who he was. Why? Because he was not there to raise up some militaristic following or, or a political war, and, and he wasn't there to cry out or to quarrel or to make a big deal of himself. I remember that part of the verse that says, like a lamb to the slaughter, so he openeth not his mouth. He used to show gentleness and humility, all the while proclaiming the truth and justice even to the Gentiles. No wonder they came to hope in him. So look what Isaiah had prophesied. Now this is God speaking through Isaiah long before Jesus was born. 42, one to four is the same verses in 18 to 21. And so at Jesus' baptism, God had said the same words that is here, my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Isaiah had foretold this in Isaiah 42, my servant whom I've chosen, my beloved. He won't come with military campaigns, no great fanfare, but he's a suffering servant. And I love the verse, verse 20. It's one of my favorite. I just feel that sometimes when when we're down and we just think, I can't take much more. It says, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench. It shows the picture of a tender shepherd looking after broken people, a ministry so gentle that the weakest will not be written off or considered useless, a candle that is so low it's about to go out, no life left in it. What a description of someone considered a loser or marginalized. He will come to rescue and save those who will believe and place their hope in the saving name of the suffering servant and the king of kings. And again, to quote O'Donnell, you see, Jesus is Lord, not just Lord of the Sabbath or Lord of the nations, but Lord, period. The noun in chapter 12, verse 8, Lord, tells us who Jesus is. And the other noun in verse 18, servant, tells us how he is or how he rules. He rules in humility for the humble. How often have you heard a testimony of someone who's gotten so low through sin or hard times, and then God steps in and saves that person and restores them? makes me think years ago when we were in a downtown church, and our ministry was mainly to Cabbage Town. And we had a strong bus ministry, I'm going back and dating myself, some of you would remember bus ministries, and we'd go into Cabbage Town and and we'd get these little kids to come to Sunday school hoping that we could contact and make a relationship with the parents. And there was one Sunday school teacher that had a couple of little boys in his class, and every Sunday morning he would go over early, knock on the door of the apartment and the kids would open the door. And he would go in and help them get dressed to come to sunday school the father would be passed out on the couch and we thought you know this is so hopeless i mean what is the point point? and you know at times i feel ashamed of thinking what was the point of this because you almost think well there's no point in this the little kids are still under the father's influence but you know god reached down and that man started to come to church and then shortly after that he was saved and then he came to some of us and said, I'm going back to school. And you thought, at this age? And he did. He got his papers and he became not an engineer, as we think of engineers, but he could work um, on all the caretaking equipment and furnaces in a, in a home and in a building. And he started to really make a good living. And then one day he came to us and he said, we're moving out of this part of town. I need to get my kids in a good environment. And we were sad to see him go. but. He is one I remember. That was, that was the Lord working. It wasn't anything we did. That Sunday school teacher was faithful and going every Sunday. But it just it made me think of this verse. A bruised reed. A smoldering wick. That man was a prime example. And you know, when you think of what Jesus taught, the story of the Good Samaritan, isn't that the same thing? It's showing so clearly the Good Samaritan and, and Jesus told such pertinent stories, stories with a point. There was a hymn written again years ago, um, an old, old one. And I remember the one of the verses because I felt when I had become a Christian, this is what he, he, he did. The verse says, he found me bruised and bleeding and poured in oil and wine. He whispered to assure me, I found thee, thou art mine. I never heard a sweeter voice. It made my aching heart rejoice. And then the chorus goes, Oh, the love that sought me. Oh, the blood that bought me. Oh, the grace that brought me to the fold. Wondrous grace that brought me to the fold. That's how it was when I became a believer. Things were not good in my life, 16 years old. The home life was pretty bad. And I just felt so desperate. And then I heard these words. I was so thankful that I'd heard the words Well, you know, we're going to study Matthew 23 much later. But Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, "'The scribes and Pharisees sit at Moses' seat, "'so do and observe whatever they tell you, "'but not the works they do, "'for they preach but do not practise. "'They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, "'and lay them on people's shoulders, "'but they themselves are not willing "'to move them with their finger. "'They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi. And right here, there's such an opposite description of what this tender shepherd wouldn't do. This servant, a bruised reed he'll not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Well, let's continue on. Got a bit more to cover. Matthew 22 to 30 then demon oppressed then a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw and all the people were amazed and said can this be the son of david but when the pharisees heard it they said it's only by beelzebub the prince of demons that this man casts out demons knowing their thoughts he said to them every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons. Then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. We'll just stop right there. Another confrontation. The man that is brought to Jesus can't speak, can't see, and is demon-possessed. And we see two reactions to the healing. The crowds are amazed. They didn't say, wow, what a magician. They actually say, can this be the son of David? Right on. But here's another reaction. The Pharisees hearing this say he's casting out demons only by Beelzebul, another name for Satan, to which Jesus applies some logic and gives these scenarios. First of all, a kingdom divided then a city or a house, and then Satan against himself. And again, I quote Douglas O'Donnell. He sums it up like this. Jesus says, what sense would it make for the devil to empower me to deliver people from devils? What sense would it make to make them healthy in body, mind, and spirit? That is the logical response in verses 25 and 26. Then in verses 27, let's just read it sorry verses 27 gotta go back on my page here verses 27 if i cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out therefore they will be your judges but if it is by the spirit of god that i cast out demons then the kingdom of god has come upon you so he's saying by whom do your followers cast them out they'll be your judges If your followers can do little exorcisms and no one doubts it is of God, then when I do something by the Spirit of God, you better believe that the kingdom of God has come upon you. So these rebellious Jews saw that each of Jesus' miracles were opposed to Satan. The Lord healed impairments and diseases, raised people from death, cast out demons, and forgave sins. And all of these evils Jesus counteracted were brought on and promoted by Satan, which further showed he could not have been working for the devil. Jesus then continues with the example of a parable. How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Well, the strong man is Satan here. His house is his kingdom, and his goods are those people under his influence. So who's able to break down the front door, tie up the strong man, and then deliver the hostages? Well, hallelujah the Lord Jesus. He did it for that man I described to you. And so the beginning of his mission began at his birth. His first victory we saw in chapter 4 in the wilderness. His most decisive victory was on the cross, and we celebrated that this weekend. His final victory will be when he comes again. So far from using the power of Beelzebul, Jesus' authority and power is his from God. So in verse 30 jesus makes it very clear that a relationship with him includes no neutral ground whoever is not with me is against me he says and whoever does not gather with me scatters romans 5 and 10 which we studied quite a while ago says in our unsaved state we're enemies of god so in reality in reality there are two kingdoms and you are either in one or the other You either see Jesus as the divine king, the one who came to seek and save the lost, or you don't. And another quote says, if you don't, you're in hostile enemy territory. You may think of yourself as being broad-minded or neutral, sitting on a fence. I argued that point when I first heard the gospel. I I remember sitting in high school thinking, well, I'll just... I'm just not going to decide any which way. I'm neutral, and I I can remember talking to myself. And the more I argued with the Lord, the more the word of God was clear until, praise his name, his word and his Holy Spirit convinced me of the empty argument. I was so thankful when I heard the faithful gospel preached. How could I argue against the Son of God? The claims of Jesus are the claims of Jesus. Either he's a misguided person with a messianic complex, or he is... Who he said he was i couldn't really call myself a christian if i didn't believe he ever existed or in the words if the words in the bible he said were true if i didn't believe them i couldn't i couldn't call myself a christian um even if i believed he died on the cross but i hadn't accepted it i couldn't call myself a christian the one who is a christian should believe believe what Christ teaches. He says, learn of me. And we don't come to church because it's a social club where we come to meet friends and get a good feeling, and maybe perhaps a little help in times of trouble. Being a Christian means learning about and obeying Christ's commands. And that means having a part in the vision of his kingdom, being part of his family, of evangelizing and of lifting up his name. Well, let's go on, we're getting there. We're going to read 31 to 37. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. Now, there's a real focus when you look at these verses on what comes out of our mouths. Notice the word, speak, and the actual word mentioned in these verses. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 34, how can you speak good? And verse 36, every careless word they speak. And then in 37, by your words, you'll be justified or you'll be condemned. So there's a warning in these verses about the choices we make and there's a sin which will not be forgiven, and that is blasphemy against the spirit. Now, blasphemy can be forgiven. So what's the difference here? Paul admitted in 1 Timothy 1 and 13, he says, though formerly I was a blasphemer, so he blasphemed, a persecutor and an insolent insolent opponent. And then he talks about the grace of God and how through faith in Jesus, he was forgiven And, of course, you know that verse that we've heard over and over where Paul says, the saying is trustworthy and full of acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the the world to save sinners. We also know Peter blasphemed and denied Christ but was forgiven. So what does the statement in verse 31 of chapter 12 of Matthew mean? It simply means this, a stubborn refusal, refusal in the face of persuasive evidence that will not even consider believing in Christ, which is what these Pharisees are committing. They had a certain amount of light in that they saw what Jesus was doing. They knew the prophecies and they refused to see and accused of Jesus of what he was doing through the Holy Spirit. And they accounted it to be the work of Satan. That is what Jesus is saying when he said in verse 33, make the tree good or make it bad. Make up your mind about me and my ministry. Either I'm evil and an evil doer or good and one who does good, I can't be both. Only one can be true about me. Anyone who accuses me of doing good by Satan's power, he attributes to Satan the work of the Holy Spirit. That is supreme and unforgivable blasphemy. They were blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, who indwelt Jesus and was empowering him. How do we apply this today? I used to wonder, have I committed the unpardonable sin? I didn't know what it was. It wasn't really preached and it wasn't talked about, and being a younger Christian, I didn't understand. And then one day an older Christian told me that if I was questioning whether I had committed the unforgivable sin or the unpardonable sin, that was a sure sign I hadn't, because I wouldn't be caring about the state of my soul or the relationship with the Lord. I would be so far gone I wouldn't even care. So how do we look at people who seemingly don't give a fig about the kingdom of God and, and Jesus' claims? who treat it like a fairy tale, a religion for all women. We have friends and relatives that seemingly don't care, and we think they'll never come to the Lord, that it's hopeless. But you know something? We are not God, and we don't know his plans for them. We think they'll die in their sins, but we don't know until it's over. We have to remember that our God is a God of compassion. The unforgivable sin is not accepting the pardon that he offers of not turning to him. That's the unforgivable sin, because you're unforgiven. Well, God has placed us in the position we're in for his purposes as witnesses. The things we say have a huge impact on people. We don't even realize it sometimes. They watch our lives to see if it matches up with our words. And so in verse 35, Jesus describes how we believers who have been bought, brought from darkness into his glorious light will use our words King James Version puts verse 34b this way, for the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Now Jesus will later explain in chapter 15 the things that proceed out of the mouth that come from the heart. So how do we use our words to encourage, to lift up, to comfort? And I say this to myself, please don't think that I'm standing here like I've arrived or that I think I'm Mrs. Goody Two Shoes because I know my heart, I know what I do. I know those secret thoughts and sometimes I think if people knew sometimes what I was thinking and I really ask the Lord, to forgive me and cleanse me. And it's a daily thing, isn't it? It's a daily thing because there are days that go by I think, how can I be thinking this, that sin, that tension that's there? So how do we use our words to comfort or do we make thoughtless remarks, crude remarks, suggestive remarks? Ephesians 4 and 29 says, "'Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, "'but only such as is good for building up, "'as fits the occasion, "'that it may give grace to those who hear.'" Can you think of a time that someone has said something to you that really lifted you up and encouraged you? I'm so thankful for brothers and sisters who have been so encouraging at times. Well, the Pharisees, by their own words, condemn themselves all the while as they conspired to condemn Jesus. So let's go on now, times flying, 38 to 42. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now imagine their tone, teacher, give us a sign. Yeah, right, like you believe what you're calling him, teacher. They really believed he's a heretic, always wanting to unmask him, and they didn't expect a sign. They were just out to get him. And even that demand for a sign shows their disbelief because way back in Deuteronomy, God had said not to put God to the test. And here they're asking for a sign, which would not have convinced them anyway. Jesus calls them an adulterous generation They had long forsaken the fellowship they had with God For a superficial, self-righteous religion They had violated their vows of their unique covenant relationship with God So often described in marriage terms Which is why he, he, he called them an adulterous generation No sign, no sign Jesus wouldn't do that Even though he could But he did give them a sign of Jonah, actually foretelling what would happen to him. Jesus gives no token signs on demand, but he does give them this sign about Jonah, who was buried in the sea, and Jesus was buried in the earth. Jonah came out of the fish after three days, Jesus rose from the tomb after three days. Jonah went on to Nineveh and preached repentance. He was a sign to the Ninevites, and they repented. Jesus was re- preaching repentance but only those who really understood, received him for who he was. Something greater than Jonah or the Queen of Sheba. So they just wanted a sign. Sometimes I wonder, do we want a sign? I know there are times when we see his hand at work through some event or happening in our lives and we just praise him and we bless him. But the Christian walk's not always like that. There are times of silence when we want so badly to see God working, perhaps as we would like, But at those times i think god would have us as john macarthur puts it exercise our spiritual muscles of faith and perseverance if we're going through one of these sessions and you know we are right now i mean we may be in complete shutdown we probably will be and here we are again we so long for our fellowship in our church and with our believing brothers and sisters and and our families and yet here we are this is one of these seasons But you know, we need to be encouraged because our unseen God is ever-present. Let's go and read 43 to 45. When the unclean spirit is gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. Now there are a lot of thoughts on what this really means. So I'm really summing it up quite small because we've still got a little more to cover. Jesus is describing a picture of what happens when religious and moral reformation occur apart from the right relationship with him. And this is a parable describing what happens when someone tries to manage their own life without God's help. They may even think God is fortunate to have them serving him. And when someone is convinced of their own morality, they become even more self-righteous. Jesus will later say in chapter 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Well, let's go on now and read verse 46. To the end, when he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And so what he's really saying here is that A relationship with Jesus takes priority over every other relationship, even the relationship with one's family. It's really a statement about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus and to be totally committed to him. For us to be as close to Jesus as his nearest and dearest kin is to do the will of his Father. Jesus was not renouncing his physical family because we know he loved them. One example was at the cross when in the midst of his suffering, he looked down at his mother and told John to look after her. He was teaching in these verses that anyone who believes can become an intimate member of his divine family. The whoever in verse 50 there shows us that the invitation to become a child of God is for everyone, and no one who believes is excluded, and no one who does not believe is included. A true saving relationship results only when we humbly respond to the gospel And that gospel of grace is described for us. I thought about the one in Acts 2, 37 to 38. Um, They hear Peter's sermon. This is the beginning of the church. And they're pierced to the heart. And they say, brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent. Each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, last week, Karen finished chapter 11 by reminding us of the rest Jesus promises if we bind ourselves to him by taking his yoke upon on us and learning of him. And we've discovered today a few more aspects of walking with him and what he really felt about the law and about compassion. We're going to discover some more next week because Eve is going to take us through the parables. So let's pray as we close. Father, we just thank you for these words to learn of you, to do the will of your Father. Oh, this is what you called us to be and do. And so we just thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We just pray that in the days ahead, we don't know what we're facing in terms of our country, our church, but Lord, you do. And so we just rest in you. So we thank you for all that you've given to us, your grace and your mercy, your kindness, your compassion. Father, we we know what Peter said when he said, where can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We're so glad that you gave to us those words. So we just thank you, dear Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.